This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Colleagues, that brings us to an end. I said at the beginning that maybe this will be so exciting that we could sell the rights to Netflix. I was kidding at the time. I'm not sure if I'm kidding anymore. Over the past 17 years, Scott Sims, a Liberal MP from Newfoundland, emerged as a leading voice on Parliament Hill on cultural and digital policy. Having spent time as a broadcaster prior to being elected, Sims was a regular participant in House of Commons debates on issues such as copyright and net neutrality. More recently, Sims served as the chair of the Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage, which conducted the review of Bill C-10 and which placed him at the heart of one of the year's more controversial pieces of proposed legislation. Sims was not re-elected this past fall and is now well-positioned to reflect on policymaking in Canada and the issues that arose with Bill C-10. He joins me on the podcast for a conversation about the bill, his suggestions for how the process can be improved, and his thoughts on crafting forward-looking digital policies. Scott, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Dr. Geist, it's always a pleasure. Okay, thanks. I think you're one of the few people that often refer to me as Dr. Geist, but uh, always well, appreciate I figured, it. I figured you worked hard for it. You, yeah. uh, the least we could do is is basically give you the, the due respect that's deserved. Uh, it's all good. I think my mom always appreciates it. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> now, you know, why don't, why don't we start? You know, this, you know, obviously, uh, this isn't the kind of conversation you necessarily would have wanted to be having, you know, after 17 years in the House of Commons and the suddenness of an election outcome can't be easy. How are, how are you managing in the in the weeks in the aftermath of the election? Actually, I'm doing really well. I I did 17 years. I was saying to someone just the other day, it's it's one thing if it's career interrupted and, and you know, you do a few years and then you're out and then it's, you know, that's one thing. But it's when you do 17 years, I mean, I had planned to do 10. And when you end up doing 17, this is a pretty good run. So I, I've, I have no complaints. Uh, I wouldn't call it sudden as such because I was approaching the the twilight years of my career as an MP. So it all worked out. Okay. All right. I'm glad to, I'm glad to hear that. You know, speaking of an MP, obviously I want to spend, you know, the bulk of our time talking about C10. You found yourself really at the epicenter of one of the biggest policy issues from a digital perspective anyway this year. But before we get there, you know, I'm curious to, to ask you, I guess a couple of questions about what it's like as, as an MP, given how many years you spent on it and as, as well as some of the digital issues, because you were always interested in, in copyright and digital policy. And, you know, I'm curious, how, how challenging is it for, for an MP to become engaged in some of these issues, the, the cultural and digital policy issues? So much of the focus, of course, tends to be on on ministers or parliamentary secretaries. What are some of the opportunities for an MP? Well, it's it when a, regarding digital policy, it's, there, you won't find a lot of MPs showing up in the room to be the first there to to say, "I want to know more about this issue," because it's one of those things that gets very technical, and it's not top of mind. It's not something many MPs or candidates would put in their pamphlets to say, "Look, vote for me because I'm big on copyright." And did no disrespect to the actual issue. Um, but it is, uh, it is something that caught my interest way back when, when I was a critic. Uh, we're now going back to the first iteration of when, of what, uh, 
uh, what copyright was. And James Moore was the minister. Brought, he was minister of heritage. And I remember going through and a lot of your material we used in that debate. And I think at the time there was digital locks was a big issue. You know, should we institute a test to do this like other countries do? And uh, anyway, it ended up passing, but, you know, not with, uh, well, we voted against it. But by the same token, back to your question, it's a lot of politicians, whether it be MPs or even provincial, their eyes will glaze over when you talk about copyright and get into the machinations of how it works and who it affects. But once you get into it, it's it's one of those things. It's like a mild drug. You just can't you can't get it out of your system. Yeah, no, I well, I, I feel the same. <laughs> it's it, it's the issue that just never seems to go away. And and so obviously, I, I recall those years around the debates on digital locks. Well, mm-hmm. I'm wondering, g- given that at that time you became a, an MP that that did speak out on these issues, did did take an active interest, and as you say, not everyone does. You know, how does that then play out for an MP? Do you hear from constituents? Do you hear mainly from lobby groups? And and what's some of the impact of of some of those voices that are are trying to bend your ear? on a policy like copyright? Well, it's certainly not something you hear from your writing. Uh, I didn't hear a lot about copyright in my writing, that is for certain. I think it, it becomes, when you get into a digital policy, and that could be copyright or it could be C10, it could be anything of that nature, um, you get a, uh, a very passionate group that exists across the country. And they're basically, well, <laughs> given the, the topic, they're connected digitally to each other, of course, and, and they're very passionate about the issue. Uh, I saw a great deal of passion in a copyright, but when C10 came along, there was a huge amount of passion for it. And like I say, it's not concentrated to one one's writing. It's not like you're talking about uh, guaranteed basic income or um, the latest um, on agriculture or some agriculture policy that affects farmers. What, what we're talking about here is something that affects um a lot of people that are spread out across the country and boy, are they passionate beyond that? Yes. It's uh, lobby groups um, are very active, especially if you're in Ottawa, you get a lot of calls for meetings. I mean, if you look at the record of who's meeting whom on parliament Hill, you'll find that a lot of people, um, a lot of lobbyists, a lot of interest groups uh, are involved. I mean, we're talking about millions of dollars here and we're talking about, you know, protection of artists rights versus the digital rights of an individual. So you can well imagine it's uh, it's very heated, but it's it's very specific in in its scope. Yeah, I mean, speaking of that sort of interest from across the country, it it does strike me that even within you know your own party, and this would be true really, I think, for all the parties, there are sure. marked differences between. MPs, depending on where they come from, you know, for example, within the within the Liberal caucus, it's always pretty clear that some of the Quebec based MPs or downtown Toronto MPs often mm-hmm. have a different view on some of these issues than MPs from other parts of the country. You know what, you know, how, how do some of those issues get reconciled? What kind of flexibility does an MP have to, to stake out a position that can differ from a colleague or even perhaps differ from from their own party? Well, you'll find with an issue like copyright or even in an issue like broadcast, broadcasting and how uh, how C10 played out, sometimes you hear opinions is based on the last person you spoke to because not a lot of people deal with this issue daily. Like, you know, I come from a heavy fishing riding. So, of course, I know a lot about fishing issues because I get it every day. Uh, but when it comes to this, you know, you, you hear about um, certain things uh, the way it should be. And then when you talk to the other side, your opinion changes. So the thing about copyright for, for uh, politicians and digital policy in general, not only is 
we're in a position where we don't know a lot about it until we sit down with someone and we get to the facts. But technology changes so quickly. It's like, you know, the things we argued about in uh, five years ago, uh, now just th- these are minor issues now compared to what we're facing in this particular day. And I've, I've experienced that quite a bit, especially over the five or six years that we were in government up until I became chair of the Heritage Committee. And when I became chair and we were dealing with you know, the big tech companies, uh, we're dealing with um, it, well, when it comes to C10. So you've got broadcasters, you've got what they used to call over the top providers. I mean, uh, where now streamers, we call them. Uh, they've opened up a whole new universe about how we consume audiovisual products. Yeah, uh, well, without doubt, which is, I think, of course, one reason why C10 mm-hmm. got as much attention as it did. Um, you mentioned, of course, you you know you became at the center of all of this as chair of the Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage, uh, and that's really why I wanted to dive in a bit more. Why don't we start with with your general thoughts on that committee process? I think it was for anyone paying attention. I think it was obvious you were trying very hard to to take a independent fair position to everyone on the on that committee all the MPs regardless of what party they came from what kind of pressure did you face uh, in terms of that that kind of independence either from your own party from the whip or perhaps even from some of your own colleagues um not really from the party or the, or the whip i i didn't experience a lot I, first of all i well i i drew a line in the sand when i became committee chair which was look this is an independent process uh, for a chair to to be involved in. And if I could just step back for a moment, if you look at the way Canadian uh, legislature or the House of Commons operates, it's not like other legislatures around the world. For instance, the chair of a select of a committee in the United States, they can be pretty partisan. You see, you have a Democratic chair of Foreign Affairs Committee. They can get pretty partisan, whether they're at the committee or in the media. In Great Britain, it's somewhat the same. They're also fairly partial. They can be partisan. But in Canada, it's a marked difference because we are really referees. We're very neutral, which is why when certain groups would approach me about, say, C10, and they'd say they want to get my opinion, they want to sway me on a particular issue, and I would say, okay, that's fine, but you know I'm a referee, right? I don't, I don't even get to vote unless I have to break a tie, which is seldom. So the process in Canada for a chair is that you have to maintain uh, that neutrality. I never received any pressure as such. I, I'm sure others might. And maybe they fold. I don't know. But I think the responsibility of a committee chair in Canada is to say right from the very beginning that this is an independent process. If someone approaches me and says, look, I want to move this motion at committee, how will you rule? on it?" And I said, well, why don't you move it at committee and then you will find out not to be flippant. But this is how the process works. It's it, you don't pre-engineer an outcome with any particular member of the committee. I don't think that serves the committee at all. I mean, every leader, whether it's Justin Trudeau, whether it was Stephen Harper or Aaron O'Toole, they'll they'll stand up and they will say, look, you know, we believe that the committee process is independent. Now, whether they believe that or want that is a different story. They may want something different, but they do say it as a matter of fact. And I think if whips or um, house leaders or, or even the PMO or the leader's office injects itself into areas where they approach the chair and try to change an outcome, that to me is not serving democracy well at all. As a matter of fact, that would end up being a disaster eventually. 
Yeah. So does that impact those, the desire of MPs to, to be committee chairs? You know, many MPs go to become MPs because they've got strongly held opinions on some of these issues. And certainly it's yeah. the case, I think, for the Heritage Committee, it tends to be populated with people that really take an active interest in these issues. So they don't necessarily want to be referees. You know, does, does that have a, a, an impact on, on who ultimately takes on some of those roles? Yeah, that, that, that's a good point because some people who are maybe people who are new would say I have a very, you know, I have a great interest in a particular issue. Let's say you come like I did. I came from the world of broadcasting. So I took an interest in heritage committee right away. Um, now being the chair, I wanted to do because I knew there was legislation. I, to tell you the truth, to be a committee chair for me, it was more of a question of I think I can do this because I'm the type of person that reaches out to the other side or whatever side may be around the table. And I think that my skill set was trying to juggle this, albeit gingerly, but you're trying to juggle all the interests. And there are people there that want to get legislation done. There are people there who want to uh, get to the nub of the issue. There are people there that want to show to their riding that they're very interested, like for me on, on the fisheries committee. But there are also people there who want to wreak havoc because they're in opposition. What I, I, the way I looked at the job was even the people who just want to cause trouble, that that's their right. They have a right to do that. They have, they have genuinely have earned the seat and the ability to sit there at that committee and debate legislation or whatever topic we're doing that day. Yeah, no. And, and obviously we, we saw some of that play out certainly when sure. things around C10 heated up. You know, one of the criticisms of the committee process, I think, was the witness list. You know, it started, yeah. frankly, with hearings that, that, that commenced actually before the bill was even referred to the committee, which was a bit unusual. And then the list mm-hmm. itself was, was, I think it's fair to say, dominated by groups that were pretty supportive of Bill C-10. And so we didn't hear from, or the committee didn't hear from, at least the first digital first creators, tech companies were, were pretty rare. There were a couple, but uh, many of them uh, didn't turn up. Uh, there were, I, I, I had the good fortune to appear as it happens twice of, before that committee, but in, independent academics were generally missing entirely or pretty poorly represented. You know, how does that happen? What's, what's the process that we end up with a committee list in the way that we did with, without that kind of broader representation? Well, it goes back to what I said earlier, and that's a valid point because the committee, the witness list is comprised of witnesses proposed by the parties. Now, the chair may throw in one or two if they so desire, if they want to push it, but they don't, they would probably be overruled by the committee. So the way it works is this. We do, let's say, okay, we get C10. We have to look at this bill. Now, give me your list. So basically, if most of the members of the committee are liberal, they get most of the witnesses. So you get, it's proportioned to how you sit around the committee. So the NDP have only one seat. uh, So therefore they get, say, 10% of the witness list. Once that's done, then they go back to whomever, like they go back to their, to uh, the house leader's office or the whip's office or to the department and say, look, we want to propose these witnesses. So for instance, I think you were put forward by the conservatives at the time. Uh, there were groups such as Friends of Canadian Broadcasting that were put forward by the NDP, so on and so forth. The problem with this becomes if you're dealing with something that is, um, new, something that deals with technology, such as the case here. And not only that, the legislation was actually changing too, in many cases. So when you deal with that, it's hard to get everybody involved because you you probably don't have a full grasp of who, who it does involve. What I would propose in the future is that you'll find that the committee has staff. They have 
people from the Library of Parliament are very, very good with these issues. They're not experts, but they quickly become close to, to experts. You know, their expertise ramps up rather quickly. And if they're allowed to talk to, uh, well, they are, but if, if they could inject themselves more as to who witnesses should be then and be more proactive, then you could get a better witness list. C10 is a classic good example because we were missing a lot from the digital world, almost exclusive for that matter. I mean, even the streaming. I mean, the only exclusive streamer we had really was Netflix. But where was Disney? Where was the, the other guys, the Paramount Plus, whoever they may be? You know, what, what are their views? Because this affected them directly. So I think the process of witness lists, um, I think sh- can be improved if the parties get together and look to the people like the Library of Parliament and say, okay, you now have a far better grasp of this legislation than we do. Who do you propose? And I think that's, that could fall on the committee chair as well. And I would, I would recommend to the next committee chair to be more involved in the witness list. It's yeah. an interesting suggestion. I, I can see how that can play out when the committee is engaged in a study that's not directly linked to a bill. But, you know, it does, yeah. it does, it does seem like, you know, if, if you're selecting witnesses along party lines, the, the party of the day, the government of the day is unsurprisingly going to want to select people who are going to speak uh, effusively about the bill itself. I mean, part of at that stage, it, it may be yeah. less about improving the bill and more about simply getting the bill through committee. Right, exactly. And it's more about the points as well and trying to get this out the door as quickly as possible. I mean, you know, th- that's just a mark of human nature because who's going to call in and, and say, the government will say, let's get this witness. You know, she or he, they're, they're really smart with this issue only to have that witness come in and say, by the way, your bill is crap. You know, so, I mean, human nature dictates we're not going to hear from that person, at least not suggested by the government. Yeah, no, I think that's probably right. You know, speaking of sailing through and moving quickly, you know, Bill C-10 for quite some time seemed to be sailing along. It it had what I thought were a bit truncated hearings, but nevertheless, they were what they were, moved to clause by clause. And it was really only with the unexpected removal of Section 4.1, the user-generated content provision, that suddenly people started to pay attention and obviously the issue really blew up. You know, how, how from your vantage point did, did that play out? Was there lobbying of committee members for removal of the provision? Did people anticipate that if we do this, this may really change the dynamic around the bill itself? 4.1 was a classic example of old world now clashes with the new. Uh, you know, C10 is very at its very base this is what c10 is about for years if you wanted to provide anything audiovisual entertainment movies sports tv if you were a type of vehicle you were a company that provided that information that that's like that's bell that's rogers that's that's shaw that these these are called broadcast distribution undertakings bdus if you are conducting business in this country and providing content and by the way American companies could not come into this country, so they would buy the content from America and they would distribute it under their name. But to do that, to have those rights to do that, you have to contribute to the Canadian system. In other words, you have to give money to primarily what is the Canada Media Fund. And the Canada Media Fund will distribute money to independent producers or and companies to make Canadian content. So that's what the thing was. We'll provide you this. Under, under regulation, but you have to provide the system with this. Now, along comes, you know, for years, of course, that was great. Even in the multi-channel universe, 
that we were um, we still had these pipes that were controlled or regulated by the government. All of a sudden, we get Netflix. Right? It's called over the top for a reason because it goes over the traditional ways of broadcasting. So now, all of a sudden, we have these people like Netflix. Now we and then you have later versions of it to today, Apple TV, so on and so forth. Well, they don't go the traditional way. They go through streaming. And to me, one of the greatest, the biggest technological or regulation impacts from technology has been the, the service of streaming because now I can get it through the internet. And the CRTC decided not to touch the internet. Well, now we got a problem because they don't pay in the system. So you can't blame Shaw or Rogers to come up to us and say, hey, how come we're paying and they're not into the system, all part of regulation? So that's where C10 came from, was to draw them in. Okay, now here's the, here's the, here's the rub. Now, all of a sudden, you come up with something like YouTube. Well, YouTube now, the thing is that when it comes to audiovisual entertainment, we saw the world unfold. The multi-channel universe in the old, the old days allowed us to see the world. Well, now with services like YouTube, not, not only are we looking at the world, but the world's looking at us. So I can give my own content up on there in addition to the movies that I want to see and I haven't seen for a while. So now we look at this and we were lobbied right away. I think it was the music companies that lobbied us first about this. And they said, look, YouTube is not involved in this, but they are a provider as well. It's a, if it quacks like a duck, it's a duck, just like everybody else, like Netflix or, or anything. Because if you want to see a movie, you can go to YouTube and get it. But here's the problem with that is that, that also ensnares the content that you put on yourself, right? So, and I remember, and, and you spoke about this well from the beginning, and then other people slowly got on board. So 4.1, right. So 4.1 was one of those things that allowed uh, the freedom to, for the content providers, like if you want to upload whatever you had, and correct me if I'm getting some of the details wrong, because you know more about this than I do. But when 4.1 uh, came up for debate, the motion was put for, you know, just to delete it, let it go. And then there was silence. And, uh, and it was awkward for me because I knew what was happening. 4.1 was, this was a big thing, right? You're now ensnaring all, everybody in this universe to be involved in this type of regulation. Whether you agree with it or you don't, this is a new world. And it was silence and an awkward silence. And then I said, um, okay, well, it's, then it's gone. And, you know, <laughs> when, when that happened, it took about 24 hours to say, oh, fire in the hole. And <laughs> the place just went up, as you know. It did. And, and I recall, actually, I think, you know, listen, listening to, to that hearing and then going through the transcript afterwards. And it felt like the department actually recognized it as well. Um, you oh, know, they think, did. Uh, you know, the, they were asked about it and they, the, the, que- I, my recollection is it was a question that came from, uh, MP Julie DeBruce and, and, you know, the response went far beyond what it needed to. It, it kind of sort of tried to say, mm-hmm. you know, be, be, you need to understand what you're deciding here. This is going, this, this has some pretty significant implications. But as you say, it, it kind of just at that moment went through and 
um, and people perhaps didn't fully appreciate what was about to take place. And as you say, what took place was, I suppose, that fire and the whole thing's really, it did really start attracting a lot of attention. We started to see some strategic moves from, from all of the parties that this began playing out. You know, I remember in particular one hearing that took place with practically no notice. This was when the government only decided it was going to just push this through. It really felt like no matter what. And, and in that you were visibly, upset it was pretty clear you started off with with a yeah. statement and i think you right away uh took a took there was there was an opportunity for a break almost instantly <laughs> it was it was obvious you were pretty pissed um you know can, yeah. can you describe describe what happened there i was pissed um it i, I think for me it was i i was at home i was in central newfoundland and i live in a place that is as we say out in the boonies so my internet connection is not great it certainly can't support me chairing a committee through Zoom. So I had to find, I had to scramble to drive an hour or so to get to a meeting that was about to start in 45 minutes. So you can imagine the panic I was in. I wasn't ready for it. No one gave me notice. Um, and here I am as chair. I'm the one that has to decide the timing. Uh, but I guess the whips got together and d- did the strategy. Now, in saying that, I don't blame any particular party. I know the conservatives made a, a hell of a blue about, you know, the fact that I was mad and I should be mad at the liberals or the NDP. But I mean, I've seen the conservatives do this too. So it's, it's, it's not exclusive to any party. It's a strategy. What bothered me the most was, you know, here we are trying to promote a family friendly kind of existence, you know, um, so. At the last minute, this had to be done, and it was all under the guise of some strategy that helps get it through. And I, I, I was pissed because I thought that you know there was a lack of respect for people on the committee for doing that. So I hope in the future, now with um, whether it's hybrid or not, that I think people, I think the people who make these decisions should have more respect over how the house operates, and they should make some rule changes, some standing order changes to accompany a family-friendly place. I mean, we preach it all the time, but we we don't seem to practice it, you know? I mean, for example, technology dictates now that we can vote through our phone, which, you know, if you're someone who's who's nursing a young child, uh, you're on a parental leave, uh, or you're sick, you, you've, you've come down with, with something, and, you know, you need... The time that you need is not there for you in order to do your job. There should be accommodations. I mean, we still vote. We stand, you call your name, you stand up, sit down. I mean, we've, we have technology, but we still vote like it's the 19th century, for God's sakes. And there is definitely room for improvement and change. Speaking of, of a place where there may be some room for improvement or change, you know, the decision was ultimately made, as I say, to push the bill through was by invoking what was described as a gag order. And at committee, that meant a, a time limit on debate, followed by, once that time limit ran out, immediate voting on all the remaining amendments. And that raises at least a couple of issues. One, the the voting process, as the committee was going through those votes, I remember sitting and, and listening and following along, as a number of yeah. people were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the only thing we got was just... You know, the amendment number, I think it was no detail on what was actually being voted on. It was just an utter lack of transparency as MPs were voting on uh, on amendments to a piece of legislation. And at the time, no one has access other than, I guess, those MPs themselves uh, to the amendments. You know, you have thoughts on, on that part of that process. Um, I think you can improve on that, but the the pro technology can help. But 
before I get to that, get address the issue directly, which is it's essentially like a, a tactic or strategy to get legislation in and out. In a way, you can't blame a particular government, whether they whether it was Stephen Harper's government or whether it was Justin Trudeau's government. They want to get legislation done, of course. They have solid beliefs. They campaigned on it. They want to do this. Okay, fine. But there's still a process that you have to go through. Now, the rules dictate that, yes, you should debate and you should have each provision within in the bill itself. That's called, we call it clause by clause for a reason, not just to say yes or no. We also debate it. But if you pass a motion in the House to say, no, you can't do that, it's you put a time limit on it or you pre-engineer how it's going to be done, even if it flies in the face standing orders, the House can do that. So we have to follow the will of the House. It's basically, it's a form of government programming or bill programming uh, where you not only decide how the bill, whether you, you like it or not, but you also decide how it's going to be treated and it may be different from what you're supposed to do. So in this particular case, um, they wanted it out of committee at a certain time. So of course, clause by clause is essential. You have to vote on it. So they decided not to have a debate as such, just straight up vote up and down. The problem was, like you said, if you're watching this, because we've been webcast now, go figure. Uh, and in webcasting, you're listening to numbers and yes or no. You have no idea. One of the things I was going to do, uh, unfortunately, I didn't get elected, but I would suggest to someone like Anthony, Anthony Rhoda, I was going to suggest him at the time, whoever the new speaker is, um, I would suggest to them, we have the technology that you can put these things on a screen, like the actual amendments. Now, provided amendments are written uh, by general linguists. That's a word. And there are actually people do this. And if you ever try to read a bill, it's like Cirque du Soleil of the mind. Like these things are, you really got to be a special type of person to be able to understand a lot of this stuff. So you can put it in plain language um, and for people to read as we vote on. That technology exists. Problem is we don't use it. Uh, So hopefully that will change. But you're right. It's personally, I find this to be an affront to the way bills should be done. But, you know, sometimes governments are in a hurry and uh, it doesn't matter what color they are. They, they, they'll, they'll do this. Yeah. Now, speaking of, of being in a hurry, the other issue that came up in the context uh, of that, of that sort of end game at committee was whether or not the amendments could go forward at all. Um, and I recall, of course, that you adopted a position that based on the instructions that the committee had received from the House that uh, they could yeah. not. Ultimately, you were taking a position that was opposed by uh, your own party's MPs who voted to overrule you. But, uh, you know, you were vindicated at the end uh, with with a, a de- with a decision that came from the Speaker of the House who, who struck down all of those amendments. Now, that can't have been easy. Uh, you know, how did that that issue play out? No, it was actually a good. I, I think that the, the the liberals who are behind the bill trying to get this through, I think they were. I don't think they were surprised by it. I think they kind of knew that was that was going to happen. I mean, I'm like the referee that stands there, and, and someone says, "You know, how dare you make that call?" I said, "Well, it's a thing, right? You know, in hockey, trip you can't trip anybody up with your stick, so that's a thing." And as a committee chair your job is to uphold the standing orders. Now, sometimes the standing orders may change based on what the house tells you to do, because there are specific instructions from the house. I have to follow exactly what the house tells me. It's not the will of a party. It's the will of the majority of the members of the house of commons. And let's not forget 
This is, we, you know, the governments are created in this country by having the confidence of the House of Commons. You may not even have most seats in the House, but if you, if you get the majority of the House to vote for you or to support you on, on key legislation, then you get to, you get to pick your minister. You get to become prime minister. So the will of the House is such that I have to follow. I fear that in the future that I hope that committee chairs don't become partisan to the fact where they, mm. you know, they do slight variations of what they were told only because it's better for the government or better for the opposition because there are opposition chairs too. I, I, it kind of worries me in a way, but um, that gave me some faith because I think the speaker did the right thing. I think Anthony Rhoda uh, agreed with me on the interpretation and uh, I think that's what was executed. Yeah, no, it, uh, it, it, I think for a lot of people, they, they came away knowing that there would still be ways around that or in the sense, still a way to put those provisions or those amendments back within the yeah. bill, which, which of course happened, but it was good to see that process upheld. You know, the, this bill is unquestionably, I think, coming back or a bill of some sort yeah. dealing with this is unquestionably coming back. It was in the platform. Reflecting back on, on your, on the experience we see, Ten, you have any thoughts on, on how we can do better, either from a process perspective or substantively? We've already identified some changes that, that might, yeah. might be beneficial within committee, but you're clearly someone who's got a, got a good understanding about how much the world is, is changing in this regard. You know, how do we ensure that we've got a forward looking approach that, that isn't dominated either by, you know, the, either the big tech companies nor some of the legacy or incumbent interests and you know the various different lobby groups that who all speak out and, and oftentimes the fear that that those that don't don't get represented in the and thus don't get aren't well represented in the kind of legislation we end up with the you just mentioned about the big tech companies and i mentioned earlier about old world new i think that when it comes to bill c10 or even the online regulations legislation that is pending i think that we have to have you know a good discussion as to where we're going based on where we are today. If we start using older methods to achieve what we want to achieve, I, I've said many times, you can get the smartest people in the room when it comes to uh, content that we consume, as you know, whether whatever platform we choose to, to, to get it from. You can get the smartest people in the room. They can put together the greatest regulations known to Canadian government. They can sit there in a room for a year or so, come up with these great regulations. It, and once they're done and once they're implemented, it will take your kids about 15 minutes to get around them. That's where we are. These big tech companies will find their client. The big tech companies have now slipped the surly bonds of this earth and they're dancing in the sky because right now we're in a position like there's now something out there called the metaverse. I have no idea what that is, and I'm not quite sure what they mean by it. But here's what we do know. Current regulations aren't going to achieve the goal that you're, you want simply because they're going to find their client. I think in the future, you may see a paradigm shift from – I'm loathe to use this, this analogy, but I can't think of a better one, which is the carrot stick situation. We use the stick for regulations to extract from companies about Canadian content. We're getting to a point now where 
the world is, all governments in the world are looking around going, how do we achieve what we want to achieve from these big tech companies? We just saw what happened in Australia about the news content. Well, everyone's watching it because we're looking at that as a model. And I think when it comes to content and how we regulate it, the whole world has to move as one and come up with similar policies. That being said, um, when it comes to the next version of C10 or online regulations, we have to come to terms with what it is we're seeing. And we got to move from a stick regulations to carrot and incentives. For example, C10 compels streamers to invest more in Canada. Netflix now has an office, a physical office, or they're about to have an office in Toronto, if I'm not mistaken. They're still going ahead with that. Did regulations compel them to do that? No, it didn't. They did it because Canada's a pretty cool place to make content. We saw that with productions like Schitt's Creek and others, right? But that's the carrot approach. You know, I saw a producer just the other day, uh, Jason Bloom of Bloom House Productions in the United States, and someone asked him about, you know, why you do so much in Canada? And right away he said, tax, tax credits. It's great. Well, there's a second part to that too, is because we have talented people who can make movies, but that's nothing to do with regulations. So we have to come to terms with what we can regulate, not what we should regulate. What's going to work? And I suspect the next iteration of C10 should bring that conversation in and get the right witnesses to, I, I think you, there's a big universe for audiovisual content. I mean, it takes three hours now to figure out what you're going to watch. It it often often does. So you end up spending a lot of time with previews. I agree with you, and I, <laughs> and, and, and I and I definitely agree with you that the that we are we have we've seen a boon in Canada um, over the last number of years, especially in this sector. And it's not because anyone was forced to; it's because uh, it was an attractive place to invest, right. either because exactly. of the tax credits or the talent. There's a there's a myriad of reasons for that, but you know that. That disconnect or that division, I suppose, that exists between those that believe that the only way it's sustainable is through regulation by requiring it, as opposed to those that I think have a bit more confidence that Canada can compete uh, without that. And that, you know, that, and, and that the way forward is to be thinking about how you incentivize as opposed to uh, how you regulate. But I suppose that's an issue that will, of course, play out with whatever the bill looks like. You know, one. Yeah. One, yeah. One I agree more, totally. Yeah. One more reflection question. You know, as a, as an MP for 17 years, I think you know you've you've been witness to some pretty big swings in digital policy. Yeah. You know, you started off by mentioning copyright, which at one point in time was pretty dominated by certain lobby groups, and and ultimately evolved to accommodate some user oriented perspectives. Digital policy started off focusing much more on innovation, digital government. Now we don't, we've lost the minister of, minister of digital government and it seems to be more about so-called harnessing web giants. You have thoughts on, on some of that evolution? How do we reconcile some of these differences? Is it generational? Is it that you get those that say this is the regulatory approach we've always used and we're just going to try to find a way to make it fit yeah. into the internet? Um, you know, what, what, what are your thoughts on how that, that kind of that, that evolution has taken place in recent years? Yeah, as, as I said earlier, you know, it's, it's these tech companies, these giants, they have now slipped the surly bonds of earth. And, and it's like what I've noticed about digital policy is we chase, we're chasing after, uh, the latest technology as to how do we address the latest technology? 
Um, I, I think in the future, I think as time goes on, I mean, we talked earlier about when we first dealt with copyright, I figured what digital locks are, you know, and, and, and these methods by which people protect their material. Well, we're going to have to have a conversation that draws a little bit farther back from that. We're going to have to look at this from whatever metaverse they come up with these days, but you have to look at this in broad perspectives because, you know, fundamentally humans as, as citizens, we don't want uh, content that is uh, offensive, runs against the criminal code, so on and so forth, racist material that is out there. No, we don't. So it, it's not, a free for all per se, but, and this is where the divide comes, the younger population. And if there's anything along digital policy that divides us, it's probably more to do with context of age than anything else. Um, my son is 27 years old and uh, he, he's a, he's a fairly left leaning guy like myself, but left of center will say, but you know, he wants his freedom too. Uh, and he's not the type of person that to be told what to do when it comes to how he gets his information or how he, uh, looks at if he wants to create music or he wants to be a creator. I, I think when it comes to the future legislation, we have to come to terms with some principles as to what we want before we get down to the nitty gritty. It may be too late for that now because legislation is coming. But I'm, I'm interested to see how this unfolds. And I'm interested in hearing people like you, who are the experts who say, hold on, um, you know, th- th- this is what you're going to create, as opposed to just always t- chasing after the latest technology. We need to come up with some basic principles like net neutrality and, and so on and so forth. No, uh, I think we're, we're in agreement again. It's, um, you know, I think we had more people in government, um, who were focused on some of those bigger picture issues. And it's, you know, I understand why there's an emphasis on dealing with some of the immediate, the immediate, the perceived immediate harms or some of the, the issues that you're responding to, which you're hearing, whether from lobbyists or in the news and the like. But, uh, longer term, we need, we need, I think we need a, a more visionary type perspective that that kind of better identifies where we may be headed and what kind of regulatory policy ought to fit. That, that, that's true if i could just and if, just add to that you know you and i may disagree michael over some of the issues about content because you know like i'm i come from the world you know i'd like for the artist to be paid and i'm not i'm not saying that you don't i'm just saying that you, you and i may have certain disagreements over certain ways in which content is out there and what you can protect or not or be paid for but before it seems like now we chase to that issue first and we find we discover what divides us on digital policy and then it just blows up from there when in fact we should seek out what what we both want out of this and i think it, like we've agreed in what the vast majority of this conversation you and i have and that's the starting point between parties i don't know if that's going to be the case because it is partisan and it is our system but yeah although i think that's true. Although I have to say that I always felt that these are issues that ought not to be partisan. Uh, that that these these are issues that don't that don't cut across as you as you mentioned with with your son don't cut across party lines in the same way that some other issues might. And it does yeah. often strike me that part of the problem is there's there's this kind of reversion to well this person doesn't want to see people get paid or this doesn't person doesn't believe in in laws at all around the internet. I mean we see some of these kind of things floated out there and 
and and I think it's a it's I think it's both wrong, but also a, a, ultimately doesn't become a, a constructive way to get to sort of where the kind of where where we can find some amount of commonality on these issues. You know, I think me, so. I mean, yeah. I've 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 heard people accuse you of being uh, someone who doesn't agree with uh, someone making money from the content that they make. I mean, that's a pretty bland. I mean, I'm sure you don't agree with that wholeheartedly. I mean, I'm sure you'd like to see people paid for their for their creative material. Oh, I absolutely do. And uh, I think it's, I think that, that when, when we see that come up, I think it's a, just a complete mischaracterization of sure. what those that are looking for, uh, for, for true balance in copyright are seeking. And I think that the reality in the decades since, for example, we entered into the copyright into with the copyright form, people are spending more now than they ever have on subscriptions and digital products and new kinds of content, whether it's through these streaming services that we're talking about uh, or in the education context through massive amounts in, of site licensing that takes place. And, you know, the, the, the problem of course, is that there's always going to be some winners and losers when you're spending and you shift from one license from one group to licenses mm-hmm. from another group, but that shouldn't be taken to mean that people aren't paying simply that they're, they're paying in different ways. Yeah, that's right. um, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, why don't we just conclude with this? It, it might be too soon, um, but you know, what next for you after, you know, you mentioned that 17 years was a really good run. It's pretty clear. You've got some really interesting ideas based on that experience, both about these issues and, and certainly about Parliament more broadly. Uh, any thoughts about what comes next? Well, for me, it's, you know, this, I've always said to people who want to run and put their name on a ballot, I said, you got to be prepared for the fact that it's not a job, it's a life. So I've led this life for 17 years. So I'm still in a period of exhaling. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out who I was before I got into politics, which was 17 years ago. And and try to figure out where I want to go from here. I don't have any concrete plans um, because, well, for instance, I, I do have a great interest in digital policy and I, in media uh, broadcasting. But the broadcasting world of 2003 is a lot different than the broadcasting world of 2021 or 22. So it's uh, which which is great because I can I, I love podcasts. I'm doing one right now. <laughs> I'm loving it. It's great. So uh, we'll see. Um, there's there's a big universe out there. And uh, luckily, it's at my fingertips. Well, Scott, you know, I think uh, I think myself and I think many others will be looking forward to see what that what n- the next chapter brings. And are, I'm thankful both for you taking the time to come on and, and provide the kind of insights sort of behind the scenes about some of the things that were taking place on C10. But even more, as you said, there's not that many MPs that, that become actively oh. engaged on these issues. And, and you were one and, and one from perspectives. And so so thank you both for coming on. And, and, and thank you for that commitment over the many years as you served as an MP. Uh, Michael, thank you as well. And keep doing what you're doing. A lot of people don't like to hear some of your opinions, but to them, that should be a that's just an inconvenient truth for some. So thank you very much for having me. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy Brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. 
Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.